Sounds like the soundtrack to Thief, starring James Caan. A horrible movie. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Private institutions of higher learning across the United States no longer serve the public good. Now that they have been captured by financialization, they've been taken over by private interests. Those private interests would be those of the enormously wealthy who, if they have their way, will be the only ones who can afford to put their kids through college. And don't worry about them. They will be so rich they can easily afford to cover their kids' college costs. After all, they made a lot of money driving up tuition. You know, like the tuition you have to pay for your child's university experience. Private schools with massive endowments, some close to a billion dollars, were cutting worker wages, if not letting go of faculty members and staff entirely during the pandemic. Sure, they could have covered those costs and kept those people on the payroll, But that's not how austerity, which the now financialized private universities have embraced, that's not how austerity works. And it's not only austerity and cutting budgets that is an existential threat to higher education in the United States. It's also the financialized instruments of alternative investments, which were created to skirt the regulations and oversight of more traditional investments like stocks, bonds, and mutual and index funds. Now college trustees with conflicts of interest Uh, to investment firms are raking it in as they line their pockets while private colleges sign deals that are lucrative for the investment firm and bad for the college, its faculty, the staff, the students, and the surrounding community. Well, maybe. That is, we're really not certain how corrupt the whole system is because it's also veiled in secrecy. And to be honest, nobody's absolutely certain who is invested in what. We'll discuss financializations as a, an existential threat to higher education in a few when we speak with writer and historian Kelly Grotke, author of the American Prospect article, The Failure of Financialized Higher Education. Big endowments and big money have made administrators more accountable to financiers than their own universities. Kelly is a board member of the 1833 Just Transition Fund, which provides pandemic relief to Oberlin College workers whose work was outsourced and were not rehired by the new contractor. You can find out more about the 1833 Just Transition Fund at learning-and-outsourced-labor.com. That's learningandoutsourcedlabor.com with a hyphen between each of the words. Kelly is an independent scholar and researcher with over 15 years of experience in securities valuation. Past guest Trevor Griffey, who is also a historian, and was on the show back in May to discuss an article he co-wrote with Maya McIver at the website of the Association of University Professors called A New Deal for College Teachers and Teaching, and Teaching Faculty Equity Equals Student Success. He tipped us off this week to Kelly's writing. Trevor contacted us, writing, 
I recall you asking me about financialization in higher education during our conversation on the show. I'm not as much an expert on it, but thought you might be interested in this article if it's an issue you want to explore more on This Is Hell. So thanks, Trevor, for recommending Kelly's writing. Listeners, if you want to suggest a guest or a topic for the show, email us your suggestion suggestion at chuck at thisishell.com, and we'll likely read your recommendation on air if we do have your suggested guest or topic on the show. We'll thank you just like we're thanking Trevor now. Again, thanks, Trevor. We'll also be discussing earlier writing of Kelly's at American Prospect from back in February on higher education. That article was titled, Are Endowments Damaging Colleges and Universities? You can follow Kelly on Twitter at KGrotke, followed by the number two. That's K-G-R-O-T-K-E, and then the number two. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing, well, it's Wednesday, so it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Oh, boy, Chuck. I went on a little family vacation last week to Virginia Beach. And? And I'll tell you, it, oh, it was a really nice experience. The beach was awesome. It was cool because after September, or after Labor Day, the crowds were very mm-hmm. small. But I'll tell you, there was one restaurant on the... Uh, on the strip there, mm-hmm. a little breakfast uh, brunch place that we did not eat at. Okay, and and it was because because of its name. <laughs> Good lord! The name of this restaurant was called Pocahontas Pancakes. Oh my god! <laughs> what is with racist breakfast joints, man? Uh, I don't know. We found that Uncle Tom's down in uh, Bloomington, Illinois. I, this that's got to stop. What I, I don't know what that's all about. You know what I saw yesterday that you'll really like? I saw a guy walking down the middle of the street, barefoot with a car key fob in his hand, just clicking it over and over again, <laughs> trying to see which car it opened up. So I couldn't. I didn't know if he couldn't remember what his car looked like, or if he was just randomly trying to get in somebody's yeah, car. Yeah, probably that. <laughs> Anything else in Virginia Beach? How's the weather? Oh, it was really hot and uh, and uh, summery, so so it was nice. Oh, that's good. And the, wa- the water was warm and the ocean and you know perfect temperature. And crowds weren't weren't frighteningly large. No, not at all. That's good. So uh, I'm completely exhausted. Last weekend we had a very close friend visit from out of town. The first person to actually stay with us in our home since the pandemic began. And I learned a couple of things about how the pandemic has affected me so far. First. In no way do I yet live in the world where the pandemic is over. I've had people use that praise or something implying it like, back during the pandemic, well, I'm not in that place yet because the pandemic is still raging. So having someone stay with us makes me pretty tense. Second, when you self-quarantine with another person and only one other person for as long as we have so far, you kind of forget how to socialize with anyone else but that person. And to be honest, I'm not certain if I know how to socialize with anyone else but my girlfriend anymore. I mean, the conversations that we have that we find riveting, I think others may view those discussions as strange, if not twisted and bizarre. And trying to socialize with someone else, well, it takes a lot of energy, and I'm still completely wiped out from last weekend. But more importantly than any of that, Richard... What's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you stockpiling over there? (laughs) I like the over there part, like you're hiding in some sort of quarry. 
What are you stockpiling over there? It's this week's question from Hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now. The winter beanie, the trucker's cap, the coffee mug, the t-shirt, the tote bag, the flash drive. It's a history of this of the 21st century as it has been discussed so far on This Is Hell, including, I think it's like 20 interviews. But you can find all that stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can find all the ways to contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We don't take any commercial money. We don't take any grant money. It's just you. I know. We thought there was a meritocracy. Big mistake. You can live your answer. Uh, live. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell. You can live your answer too if you like. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff must look back on a piece of theater he never saw. Now, how he's going to do that, I do not know. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, following a conversation with Kelly on the existential threat to higher education. So a friend and avid listener of This Is Hell, David, forwarded a tweet to us yesterday. The tweet states, The most integrated census tract in Chicago in 2020 is the area immediately south and east of Warren Park, bounded by Ridge Devon, Western, and Pratt. The tract is 32% Asian. I don't know what they mean by Asian, but okay. 24% Black, 23% Hispanic, and 21% White. For those of you not that familiar with Chicago, that area is directly across the street from where I am sitting right now. It's the neighborhood where we work, where I live. So congratulations to Arthland for being Chicago's most diverse neighborhood. And I'm still trying to figure out what they mean by Asian because Asia is a gigantic continent and we have residents in our neighborhood from all over the Asian continent. Coming up, higher education for private interests instead of the public good. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can see all that stuff right now by going to thisishell.com when you click on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is Hell, there was a time when education was understood as a public good, as a way to become socially mobile, as a path toward the kind of success your parents could never attain. But that was before the popularity of running everything like an efficient business that seeks profits. When that thinking is applied to higher education, it could become a disaster with top-down decisions being made without any input from faculty, staff, students, or the surrounding community that often depends upon the university not only for its income, for its economy, but for its very identity. Here to help us understand the challenges facing higher education today, writer and historian Kelly Grotke is author of the American Prospect article, The Failure of Financialized Higher Education. Welcome to This is Hell, Kelly. 
Hey, thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Kelly is a board member of the 1833 Just Transition Fund, which provides pandemic relief to Oberlin County workers whose work was outsourced and were not rehired by the new contractor. You can find out more about the 1833 Just Transition Fund at learning and resource, I'm sorry, learning and outsourced labor.com, but a hyphen between each of those words. So learning hyphen and hyphen outsourced hyphen labor.com. And again, thanks to Trevor Griffey for recommending Kelly to be on our show. You can follow Kelly on Twitter at KGrotke2. So you write that despite federal pandemic aid of $69 billion, over 650 jobs were lost, 650,000 jobs were lost in higher education last year, amounting to one out of every eight workers. This was the most extreme decline ever witnessed in the 60-plus years that the Labor Department has tracked specific industry numbers. Did those in the education sector, like those in restaurants, simply not return to their previous careers, or were the higher education jobs not by uh, lost not by choice to some degree? Um, I don't. I'm not really sure about that. I mean, the losses uh, were um, just really, really widespread. Um, there were places like Oberlin that just cut jobs um, and or outsourced them. Um, and I'm not sure actually what percentage of those might have been restored, but it was remarkable to me that there would be such enormous losses um, given the extent of the pandemic aid, which you'd think would be used to keep communities whole and to keep workers working. Um, but evidently that wasn't the case. And at some places you even had tenured faculty cut, you know, so it was it was a hard, hard year. I wanted to ask about that tenured faculty, because you point out that in typically cruel neoliberal managerial fashion, most of those cuts in higher education were directed at the lower ends of the pay scale, affecting already vulnerable service and support workers and adjunct professors rather than tenured or tenure track faculty and administrators. Does higher education, to some extent, not have a choice? Don't at least tenure track faculty have protections within their contracts that makes it so the only choice higher education has is to cut the least protected. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the, the cuts on the lower pay scale or side of the pay scale are just, you know, for a lot of, of institutions, it just seem easier to do. And, and yes, faculty do have protections from tenure, but then you get places like Akron where they plead catastrophic circumstance, which allowed them to cut a lot of tenured positions too. And a similar thing happened at Ithaca College. So. I think you're seeing the potential for the erosion of the protection of tenure in academia, and that's, I think that's a dangerous precedent. Do you think we're looking at a future where there is no tenured faculty, where everyone is adjunct? Um, I think there are definitely some business interests that would prefer it that way. I mean, it's a, you, you have an easier to control workforce, right? Um, Tenure protects uh, academic freedom. Um, in an adjunctified world, uh, you're basically at the mercy of the market. And adjuncts are not making a good living. I mean, I think it's a, a I think it's a catastrophe for higher education generally to have so many adjuncts as it is. Um, I think that they should re really relook at uh, certifying um, these institutions because those are people who are working in very precarious circumstances, as Trevor explained when he was on your show. 
How much of an effect do you think that that recertification process or even the threat of recertification, what impact do you think that that would have on the financialization that has happened at universities? Oh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not really an expert in higher ed. Um, I've more looked at the finance stuff, but um, I I think it would be a major change um, if you denied certification to institutions that had, say, you know, uh, greater than, you know, 20% adjunct, even that would make a huge difference. So what happens to the students' university experience? What happens to their education when there isn't tenured, fa- if there wasn't tenured faculty who had that academic freedom? How does that affect the students' university education experience? Well, um, I'm, I'm outside the university, although I have worked in, a, in an institution, you know, higher ed. Um, but my, my general feeling is uh, I, I worked as an adjunct when I was completing my Ph.D. And so that, that's fine. Right. That's that goes with the territory. But, you know, after I got my Ph.D., that's when I started working in finance um, because adjunct work didn't pay the bills. Um, so you have people who are working for basically low wages, probably no benefits. And I think that inevitably is going to affect the quality of the education. You have people, I, I know some of them that are working at like four institutions in Chicago and going all across the town just to teach at different institutions. And maybe they make an okay living, but it's it's a really precarious one. And um, I I don't see how people in that situation who are worried about, you know, you know, who get married just to have health care or whatever, how how that's a really stable basis for education in the country. That's just precarity. And it's not a future that um, I would actually I, I these days, the job outlook in, in higher ed is so bad and your chances of getting a good tenured position are so minimal that it's kind of, you know, calling into question the whole, um, the whole process of higher education. Like, why would you do this to yourself? There has to be a major change. The whole system is kind of precarious, except for at the elite institutions, of course. Um, I think those will probably weather whatever storms come along. But broadly speaking, I'd say higher ed's in a crisis. And not to go all geopolitical and stuff, but, you know, if you don't have a highly educated population, how are you going to compete globally? I mean, education should be a public good, widely available to everybody, but the current system doesn't sustain that. You write one of the worst examples of COVID-era managerial fiat comes from McGill University in Canada, which is mandating in-person teaching. Its provost threatened retaliatory measures against faculty who refused to teach in person, stating that even concern about putting relatives and spouses at risk of exposure was, quote, not a valid reason for granting permission to teach remotely. In classic agency theory fashion, faculty were also preemptively suspected of falsifying information and malingering. This is in Canada, not the United States. Is Canada, if Canada is also experiencing the same challenges when it comes to educational institutions being run like a business, is this not only a U.S. or even a Canada problem, but is this becoming a global problem wherever education is being run like a business? Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I, uh, I, went, I was in Helsinki for about four years, 
and uh, I worked at, in the law school. I, I was a, a postdoc there. And I happened to be there at the time when the law school was instituting its various metrics. You know, and this is something that accompanies the treating of education as a business uh, rather than as you know, a public good. Um, faculty were subject to all sorts of monitoring. Um, at one point, they even, uh, they even suggested that we clock in and out which, you know, if you know academics, is kind of a, a silly thing. I mean, you know, it's like not a nine-to-five job. <laughs> but, yeah, it was incredible. Um, and they were really concerned about rankings. Um, and, you know, Helsinki, or Finland generally, um, and rightly so, has, a, has a, an, a good reputation for education. I mean, it's widely available. It's very inexpensive. It's very high quality. Um, it's something that you know, Finnish consultants travel all over the world to, to, you know, share the news on. But at the same time, um, my experience working there, uh, the university is concerned about international rankings. There's lots of pressure to meet certain metrics, which then are translated into sort of qualitative things. If your metrics are right, you're a better place. It's a, it's a ridiculous kind of educational arms race. And I, and I, you know, that's my experience and I, you know, with European context. And um, they have a more stable system. There's a lot of postdocs and things that support people that would otherwise here be adjuncts. So it's a, it's a bit of a different system, but yeah, I mean, it's, you're seeing, you're seeing the late neoliberal university uh, there too. So private financial interests are making decisions on education, not educators. But how can private financial interests, how can they make money or earn profits off schools that have now fewer qualified instructors who work in far more precarious conditions with lower pay and benefits, a worse education experience, and higher in educate or higher tuition? How do they how do they make money? Um, basically, the money comes through tuition. Um, you know, that's, I think for most universities, that's kind of the operating budget. Um, but you have differences between like the public system, um, and the private one. And I, I've looked at one big in detail studied in one big public university and then Oberlin and Oberlin is, you know, a small liberal arts college, private, um, with a, a pretty enormous endowment. You know, in public universities, some of them have endowments too. And um, you'd think, I mean, these are giant piles of money, essentially, right? And so it's less the university making money, although they are, um, but the people that are <laughs> have interests in what the endowment is invested in are making tremendous amounts of money. And I'm still kind of studying all of this stuff and trying to figure it out because it's a complex system. Um, but looking at the synergy that you have between these endowments, which are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? I mean, it used to be that I thought that the endowment was, you know, a rainy day fund, right? And this past year has definitely been, you know, <laughs> a rainy day period um, at best. And so it was... It was kind of like, well, at Oberlin, they 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 fired um, about well, they fired or outsourced over a hundred workers, right? 
this was planned before the pandemic, but they went through with it despite the pandemic. Now you're talking about also depriving people of benefits like health insurance, right? Oberlin's a highly has a you know a history as being a highly progressive place, right? It's right wingers love to bash on it. Um, so how was it that a place like this that had a strong commitment to labor rights. All the the fellow people on the 1833 uh, Just Transition Fund, they all come out of labor. Um, I came out of finance. And so we kind of banded together to try to understand what was happening there. And that's kind of where it began for me. I'd been following Oberlin's endowment for about a decade with increasing alarm because they were allocating ever more um, percentages into alternative investments. And I think that this has created a problem. Um, in the early, like around 2010 or so, there was a paper that came out, an economics paper, talking about um, endowment hoarding. And at the time, as I recall, they didn't really have a reason why this was happening, except for maybe U.S. News and World Report, right? You know, so the bigger your endowment, the better your university or whatever. Um, but now it's become clear that it's, you know, it's, it's more complicated than that. There's hoarding, um, but the endowments are locked up in these very complex, very non-transparent investments that are making tremendous amounts of money for people on Wall Street. Um, uh, because the secrecy here is, is the thing. Nobody really knows how much money has gone from endowments into the finance sector. That's not required to be disclosed. And I think that's a huge problem. Because, you know, as you see tuitions rise, and Oberlin is now just like, I mean, I couldn't afford to go there. It's just under $80,000 a year to attend. Um, when I left, it was 20000 And that was considered incredibly high. And this pattern shows no, um, no, uh, uh, no sense that it's going to stop. Right? Tuitions are going to keep going up. And institutions aren't using their endowment or they're using a very small percentage of the money in the endowment and costs continue to rise and higher ed's becoming unaffordable. The kind that I had and I really enjoyed. I love it. You know, I love the place, but it's out of reach for a lot of people now. And that, and that's bad. And you're right that this process has taken hold. It's through the ever-expanding world of alternative investments. And I just want to make sure people understand what these are. You give them examples of private equity, hedge funds, venture capital, REITs, that's a real estate investment trust, and others. These funds often lock up investor money for years, preventing investors like universities from accessing it during a crisis. Why do these yeah. investments need to be locked up for years? Is that the only way these investments can earn money for those who have bought these investments to have them locked up for years? Well, the the because they're so secretive, it's re it really is hard to get information about like what any particular institution is doing. But generally speaking, like in a private equity investment or so, you're looking at a maybe 10, 15, 20 year term, um, which means that, you know, you and you you put your money in the pot and you're not going to know until it closes um, how much you've made on it. And if you withdraw, you're usually going to face a penalty. And those are usually pretty stiff. Um, alternative investments are basically, there's kind of a family resemblance of types of investments 
that in one way or another exempt from the Investment Act of 1940. Um, the exemption is was kind of procured, uh, what was it, Alfred Winslow Jones, I think, was credited with the, the inventor of the, the hedge fund. Um, and the argument was that between sophisticated investors, you didn't need a lot of regulation, right? You can't, it, it was like, you can't tell rich people what to do with their money. They're informed, they're, they're, they know what they're doing. And so that justified the very light, if any, regulations that these investments were governed by, right? And um, that's also when the fee structure came into being, the, the what is it, the two and 20 model, you make 2% annually plus 20% after a certain threshold gets reached, which made them incredibly profitable. And at, at that time, like the, you'll find this unbelievable, I, at least I did when I first heard about it, when this was like, you know, post-war era, um, the tax rate at that time, I think on the exceedingly wealthy was 91%. Um, it's been a political choice to have that change radically. Um, and you also had, the, because the, uh, the tax rate was so high on personal income, um, that's when the carried interest loophole kind of entered in because capital gains were taxed at a lower rate, right? And that's still the case. So this is one of the, the engines of profitability um, that's kind of captured uh, endowments in higher ed, some places more than others, but Oberlin's allocation into alternatives is like, ah, it's around 65%. You know, that's very high. That means that the money is not accessible. And endowments are complex, and there are lots of reasons, you know, alumni donate to a particular cause or whatever they want to invest in. So there are all of those restrictions as well. But basically, you know, these, these things are very profitable for Wall Street. And they're governed by these secret contracts. Um, a few of them have been leaked. So you don't really even know um, if there are any conflicts of interest. You can't really tell. I mean, you can dig around a bit and find some clues, and maybe you can uncover something. But this is part of the capture of higher ed by finance. And at Oberlin, a place I know pretty well, um, it's changed the character of the institution. I mean, when I was in grad school, I remember sitting down, Leon Botstein from Bard had come in to talk and he was asking me where I'd gone as an undergrad. And, and I said, Oberlin, and he says, oh, that place has a reputation for being really hard to govern because it had such a strong faculty governance presence, that's kind of gone. Um, and I think part of that has to do with, you know, the way that higher ed has become, you know, profoundly indebted to financial interests. Basically, from some faculty there, it's like, yeah, the trustee kind of owns the place. You know, faculty ask questions about the investments and what the actual returns are, and they get nothing in response. It's become very much more autocratic. Um, so the sense of self-governance in the faculty has really declined. And I think, I expect that's the case with a lot of other institutions, um, but it's definitely the case at Oberlin. You write all these alternative investments are barely regulated and not at all transparent. So how risky are investments in alternative investment? Because you would think that a university would not be taking risks, that they wouldn't be looking for short-term short gains, 
but long-term gains, believing that the university is something that is going to be there, it's a historic institution, is going to be there for a while. So you would think that they would be aiming for short-term or for long-term gains, not short-term. So how risky are the investments in alternative uh, investment? Oh, I think it, it can vary a lot. I mean, but, you know, there's the risk goes up, the more secrecy and um, lack of transparency there is. I mean, you know, you don't know, for example, until the, the term of the investment expires, how much you've actually made. Um, and the investments are being used. I, 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 come, I come at this from the, the angle of valuation. Right. These things are really difficult to value. Right. You have like because um, the way the accounting works is that there's the fair value regimen is, is what governs how things are valued. And the most transparent level of information is what you get from the market. Right. So a direct transaction in the same exact item. So if you're selling a stock and you have a price that day, then you know what its value is. Um, there are other levels. Level two is like you have, yeah, something's trading that's kind of close to this. And I can make an argument that why that would affect the value of what I own, which isn't trading right now. But when you get to these alternatives, um, there's no market activity, right? So the only way you can value them um, to be honest, is, you know, mathematically, because, <laughs> you know, and, th and that's a complex process. So, and you do it by means of probability, um, which means that you're dealing with inputs. And if your inputs are wrong, your valuation is going to be wrong. And it's also very hard to check what, say, management, in this case, would be the trustees, um, what their figures are, because these are so difficult to value. You know, so there is there is a lot of risk, um, but I think more more salient for for what's happening in higher ed is that you know the endowments they're they're chasing yields, right? And these alternatives are supposed to make a lot of money. That's their appeal. It's the Yale model, David Swenson. You know, that's where this came from. Now it's become a fashion. You know, so everybody's doing it. And if everybody's doing it, you can pretty much guarantee that people who don't have like, you know, institutions that don't have the pull of Yale, which can impose different, you know, criteria because it is so wealthy, the institutions like Oberlin aren't going to have access to the same kind of vehicles, um, the same kind of profits. But they've endowments are now doing the yield chasing partly because of the other side of the equation, which is also part of the financial capture of higher ed, which is debt in the form of bonds. You know, so it's like the finance world gets you going and coming, you know? So the, if you have debt, it's kind of like being an individual with a, with a credit score, right? The more you borrow and the more debt and the more you get embroiled in those relations, the better your credit score is, at least if you're able to pay on a regular basis. And in, in institutions of higher ed, um, there, were, there was the, the thing I talk about in the piece, which was particularly disturbing. And I don't think, I don't think that the whole sense of the social costs of what happened after the financial crash of 2008 
have, re- have really come home. I mean, in Chicago, speaking of Chicago, Chicago got caught up in these interest rate swaps. Um, this, this was disastrous for the Chicago Public School District and really costly. Um, and a similar kind of thing happened in higher ed. A lot of institutions got caught up in these interest rate swaps, which when the financial crash happened and interest rates went down to kind of close to zero, and the cost of borrowing generally would have gone down, they got locked into, again, longer term contracts that, you know, forced them to pay much more than they could have got otherwise. So they were locked into paying higher interest rates on their debt. And a lot of, you know, a lot of institutions um, basically are caught up in this paying, you know, hundreds of millions um, altogether, if not more, I, I presume it was a lot more, um, to the banks that had engineered these deals. You know, this caused a lot of places to just hemorrhage cash. It wasn't just higher ed. It was municipalities all across the country. Um, it, it was disastrous. And <clears throat> so you're looking at a situation which like socially, um, and not, and again, it, it's a much bigger deal than, than even at higher ed, although higher ed was also really damaged by this. Um, you see a lot of what taxpayer money is going to say from a municipality that got affected by the swaps is that's going to debt service, you know? And so the, the whole system is, is just, you know, shot through with financial interests. And I think they are having increasing control over the conditions under which we live, the type of education we can get, the extent of our social services, the quality of the K through 12 education. Because you know, if they if Chicago's public school districts hemorrhage $50 million, that's money that didn't go to that district. You know, that's a that's a, a predominantly minority district. I think it's upwards of 80%. And so you can see how you know finance contributes to systemic racism as well. I mean, it's everywhere. And there's got to be a better way of doing things. As you write, alternative investments inevitably cause negative and damaging social and economic effects. If they are so damaging and destructive to society and the economy, in your opinion, why are they not being regulated? Why do we let that damage go unchecked? We saw what, as you're pointing out just now, we saw what happened here with Chicago public schools losing $50 million, having to close down a lot of schools having to mm-hmm. have trouble with, uh, you know, they took trouble with, uh, negotiating with the teachers union. So if they're so damaging to society and the economy, why do we just let this go on? I think because we unfortunately live in a country where money is speech. You know, this is an incredibly wealthy industry. They make a lot of money, you know, and I, I I wish it were different, and I hope it will be someday. Um, I hope that if, if people realize that the systemic effects that this type of finance, this unregulated finance is having, that maybe we can oppose it. But they're very, it's very wealthy and very powerful industry. And they're going to lobby, like, you know, in, in Biden's infrastructure reform package, um, private equity is all very interested in, and hopeful, I think, that a lot of public assets um, might get transferred into their hands because the argument, as you know, is like private interests run things more efficiently. 
Well, no, they don't. That's ideology. That's pure ideology. Um, And it's really destroying the quality of life for the rest of us. I think this is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, right? We could do better. You know, that's the thing that really gets me is that whole concept, as you were just touching on, of running anything like a business. It will be run more efficiently. It will be more effective. And it was always the pitting of government versus or the state versus uh, capitalists who can run the economy better. Why is running an university education, why is running an educational institution like a business not good for an education? Well, because I, I think it reduces education to brand, right? It, it becomes a commodity. It's, it's not something that enriches your lives, that gives you skills that you can use, um, that shows you different ways of being. Um, and it's a commodity. I mean, honestly, if you look at the Moody's higher education methodology, it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, I'm not against fiscal responsibility that's not the point. Um, It's the commodification, you know? Um, So basically from Moody's point of view, uh, a place like Liberty um, is about equivalent to Oberlin. They just have different audiences. Different people are attracted to their brand. It's a very instrumentalized view of education, you know, and fine, yes, institutions have to be, you know, run well um but when you when you only look at the like the money you lose a lot um at oberlin i think there's been um a loss of a sense of of community now i've been in touch with some of the people who who were let go some were able to take early retirement and they talk about how betrayed they feel you know by the university's decision there there was no even no attempt to bargain in good faith on the part of the the institution they just had to impose austerity right in order to keep oberlin's brand alive um this destroyed a sense of community and i think that's part of education too um institutions work within communities they have ties to those communities. They employ people in those communities. It's particularly evident in Oberlin because I think, you know, outside of the college, that's pretty much the town. And, you know, the businesses that are in the town are also supported by the college indirectly because students will buy things and go to restaurants and all these things. So it's got a poverty rate of about 25%, if not higher. Um, And there's a real sense of betrayal. Like, you know, they felt the, the workers felt like they were part of a community. And they just basically got kicked to the curb. Um, And this is a a consequence of the need to impose austerity measures in order to satisfy external financial interests, right? You had to get your debt and your your, um, tuition revenue and all of these things have to be coordinated in way X, which is a very abstract criteria. Totally, totally, um, you know, ignoring the the particular aspects of communities, the particular ways these communities have developed over time. And again, I mean, Oberlin is a place with a pretty progressive tradition and labor rights are part of that. And, you know, for me, it was just stunning 
to to see they were going to save 2.5 million a year right they said by firing these workers and outsourcing them right they regularly pay over three million dollars minimum to investment managers and i and you know like something doesn't compute here right and when Canavan, who's the head of the trustees at Oberlin, said you have to pay for talent, he said this to a, 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 a group of faculty over a Zoom meeting, you know, when they asked him, how much are you actually paying investment managers? How much of Oberlin's endowment money is going to Wall Street? He wouldn't say. There's no disclosure on any of these things. So, you know, this is how it is in a lot of places. I don't know of any single institution that's invested in these kinds of things that is voluntarily disclosed um, how much they are actually funding to Wall Street. Now, just think, I mean, I did a, a brief look at the Ivy's 990s over the decade after the crash, uh, minus Harvard, which is a separate thing. But that was, they were paying over a decade at least $250 million in investment management fees. And according to the work of Ludwig, Ludwig Falapu at uh, Oxford, he's like one of the big experts on private equity, knows it really well. He says the real figure could be five times that much. You know, so speaking like when, when we began talking about education as a public good, right? How is it a public good when so much money possibly a billion dollars over a decade just from the Ivies went into the hands of Wall Street. How does that serve anybody but Wall Street? That's money that could have been invested in education, but it's not. And as you said in, in the introduction, I mean, you know, the, the top fund managers uh, would easily be able to afford whatever tuitions ended up being like say 10 years from now, maybe they're 150,000 a year. The rest of it get, uh, gets saddled with debt, you know, and that and that's just criminal, um, and it, it, it can't be sustained. And It'll only be sustained for the wealthy. And I personally, you know, find that they're wealthy people and they do whatever they do. But we need to broaden education, make it available to everybody, and you can't do that in a system that's like sending bucket loads of cash to Wall Street all the time. It's like it's been captured. It's destroying education from within. The people who have made these investments aren't even being held accountable. You point towards Larry Summers costing Harvard a billion dollars. A billion dollars, and they knew this in a 2009 report. 2000 and, what's it, 2020? We have Joe Biden bringing in Larry Summers as an economic advisor in his campaign. He didn't get rid of Larry Summers until there was a lot of pressure by uh, self-identifying uh, progressive groups who said that they, you know, you need to get Larry Sanders out of your, or Larry Summers out of your campaign. So why are these people not held accountable? Why isn't Larry Summers' career ruined by the fact that he cost Harvard a billion dollars? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. <laughs> And, you know, I, I think uh, I, I can only guess. I mean, there's the whole thing about failing upward. Um, but I do think like we're looking at uh, we're looking at an oligarchy. Right. I mean, there's so little accountability in finance. And, and that's because, in part, there's so little transparency. 
I mean, I think that any nonprofit um, institution um, like like Oberlin um, and and you know public universities too that have endowments should be forced to declare how much they are actually paying in fees because that's a politically charged thing, right? Um, and I think there are also problems about conflicts of interest. I mean, that was quite clear in the Summers case. Um, but the, this is part of the illusion that the world of finance is kind of like uh, a fact of nature, right? I, I think that's maybe where a bit of the lack of accountability comes in too, because, oh, you know, it's just the market and it goes up and down and ooh, isn't that interesting? Um, so there's no personal responsibility because this is like a systemic thing. Um, and I, I also think that it, it, there is the oligarchic aspect. And so you, you can't, it's very hard to, to ferret out the conflicts of interest and who's enriching whom, um, but it's clearly happening. Are the external financial interests that impose austerity on these higher education communities, um, when they... Let me rephrase this. Uh, so what happens when you have that disconnect from the interests of the from the external financial interests and the interests of the community? What happens when the austerity measures that are imposed by external financial interests are not good for the community's financial interests? Well, I, again, you know, talking about the case, I, I, I know best at this point. Um it's the answer from the administration seems to be yes. So what, you know, I mean, the, the Oberlin administration was apparently so concerned about its bond rating. Um, and there are reasons for that. Sure. Um, but it's not answerable to the, to the community. I mean, and you're seeing, I think you're seeing this in a lot of places. Um, the administrations and the boards of trustees are dominated by people that are in finance or finance adjacent careers, law. Um, you know, there's, there's very, when I was at Cornell a few years back, I think there was only one person on the board of trustees, a faculty member who was in the humanities. You know, so there's a, there's a, there's, there's a kind of shared culture in which, you know, um, and it's, it's a very elite one. Um, and you see it at Oberlin where the trustees and the administration don't even feel that they're answerable to the faculty. Now I've talked to a faculty there and, and, you know, when the piece on, when the piece on the interest rate swaps um, came out, one of them said to me like, what, we were involved in this? You know, and if you don't have transparency, you don't have good governance. There's no basis for trust. And, and people cycle in out of, of higher admin these days. They, they don't necessarily have a loyalty to the community in which the institution is, is based. They're going to go off to another university and make a higher salary or whatever. So it's not the people who are running the place and who have control of the purse strings and are making all the investment decisions don't necessarily have any deep roots in the community. 
You also point out, you are just mentioning the humanities. You write that at a time when the humanities in particular have come under increasing pressure to prove their value, when hiring and salary freezes are being widely instituted in some colleges and universities, including Oberlin, are even halting employee pension contributions. The lack of basic transparency about the financial condition of endowments, along with an increasingly top-down corporate attitude that's become characteristic of the commodification of education itself, just doesn't cut it. So what does the current crisis of financialization in higher education reveal to you about the value of the humanities? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think it's something I've, I've probably struggled with. I mean, um, I've been in and out of, of higher ed myself. I've worked in finance to pay the bills. Um, and I'm trying to finish a book on natural law and logic of all things. Um, I can, I can tell you how it feels. It feels like something that, that I find actually kind of beautiful. The process of learning of, of sitting down with a bunch of books and trying to figure something out. Um, this is not necessarily an activity that is immediately um, immediately translatable into a financial value. I could spend eight hours reading and come up with nothing. I could spend two hours reading, maybe come up with an idea. But this sense of value, right? This is something I think we all experience in our, our daily lives, right? The things that are meaningful to us. Um, as a historian, one of the things that's meaningful to me is, you know, um, the, the work I've done. Um, but it's the sense that there is no other value than the monetary that I think is really, really disturbs me. Um, just this morning I was reading the paper and, uh, there was a story about, I think it was in the guardian about a woman who worked at a university, maybe in Kansas or a public university, um, gets paid like $10 something an hour by the university, which as we know is not a living wage. Um, just went through cancer, is trying to keep her job, can't get by, has no money left over for anything. You know, and that's an extreme version of what we're seeing with the erosion of all values, but the monetary, you know, she doesn't have time for anything. It's all just her life is reduced to earning money and in a system that won't support her. And that's, that's just brutal. Um, and again, in a wealthy country like ours, we shouldn't treat people so poorly. Um, Mike Kongsall of the Roosevelt Institute talks about freedom from the market. And, and he's got a recent book about this. And, and I think it's, it's a really interesting thing because he's, in a way, he's talking about this too, that we do in this country have a history of protecting certain things from market forces, right? So it's not reduced to this sort of bare life, right? And, I think the, the 
erosion of all sense of value, the reduction of everything to monetary value. Um, like Moody's, right? You you look at their their way of looking at higher ed, and it's all about the money. There's no other sense of value. Everything that I would value about the experience I had at Oberlin or at other places I've been um, is reduced to like a 10% weighted thing on brand and you know brand strategy. That that it, it's it's just sad, and I think a lot of us are feeling that the pandemic conditions have probably, you know, uh, made it a lot harder for a lot of people to think about what they value outside of the need to just stay afloat. And you get the student debt uh, crisis thrown in there too. You know, uh, we don't need to do this to people. We don't need to burden people for the rest of their lives with outrageous amounts of debt just because they wanted an education. The other part I don't get about this, Kelly, is the contradictory nature of it. Because you you write of Oberlin, depriving some of the college's most vulnerable employees of health benefits and income is bad enough for a historically progressive college in a town with a poverty rate of over 20%. But it represents a particular kind of cruelty in the midst of a deadly pandemic. Now, you were mentioning earlier uh, private interest prioritizing of brand strength. How bad can austerity and alternative investments be for a college like Oberlin that prides itself on being progressive? How bad is this kind of financialization process and alternative investments for Oberlin's brand progressivism? It's very bad. It's very bad. I mean, I people there have told me that it's like they want to turn Oberlin into some kind of like, you know, weird fourth tier whatever, right? Um it's not only that they were violating the, or, you know, the, <laughs> they fired unionized workers and outsourced them. That, that was one thing, but they were also doing other things at the same time. They gutted the co-op system, which Oberlin is kind of, it's kind of unique. Um, it gives students the opportunity to live collectively um, and to cook collectively, and it lowers the cost of their board. At room and board. Um, recently, the the administration, and this was part of the same austerity package, right? Decided that that wasn't efficient enough, and so they basically gutted that. And now, if you want to join one of the co-ops that still survives, because um, a lot of them didn't make it, um, you're basically paying the same room and board. You know, so it destroyed the whole advantage for students, and 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 also it's a pretty unique culture. Um, they also had a uh, uh, they had a uh, kosher halal co-op, uh, so you know Jewish and Muslim students were living and working cooperatively with with, with each other. It was pretty unique. That's gone. Um, that's gone too. So yeah, it's a it's a it's kind of an austerity package, and it just got imposed. A lot of people pro- protested. Right. Um, but the the administration would not be moved. It had to do what it was doing. It wasn't going to listen to any arguments. It wasn't even going to try to find a creative way of getting out of this. Um, and yeah, I think they've done a lot of damage to the thing that Moody's thinks is actually important, which is the brand. People go to Oberlin because they're drawn to that progressive history, you know, and, and I've talked with students there still and they're, they're as, as good as they ever were and as interested in these things as they ever were. Um, and they're, you know, they're opposing all of this stuff. 
Um, but in a context, I mean, if, if it keeps going like this, um, if they keep this commodified view of education, if, they, if they're not, the institution is itself not living up to some measure of those ideals, then yeah, it's, it's bad news. One last question for you, Kelly, even though I could ask you another 40 that I have written down here. We've been speaking writer to writer and historian with writer and historian Kelly Grotke, author of the American Prospect article, The Failure of Financialized Higher Education. We've also been discussing with her an earlier writing of hers from back in February entitled, Are Endowments Damaging Colleges and Universities? You can follow Kelly on Twitter at Kelly Grotke, too. And just before we go, I just want to make sure I mention this again. Kelly is a member of the 1833 Just Transition Fund, which provides pandemic relief to Oberlin College workers whose work was outsourced and were not rehired by the new contractor. You can find out more about the 1833 Just Transition Fund at learning-and-outsourced-labor.com. Learning-and-outsourced-labor.com with dashes in between. One last question for you, Kelly, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question (laughs) is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write at one point, you describe (laughs) our current times as, quote, a heavily financialized economy that has transformed our society from a democracy into an entrenched oligarchy. To end that oligarchy, must we end financialization? And can education or anything be definancialized? Oh, it's like the $6 million question, huh? <laughs> yes, I, I think it can be definancialized. It's going to take a lot of work because it's a complex system and it's gonna have to involve a lot of moving parts. But I do think that if people understand the extent to which the quality of their lives, um, the prospects for their future are tied up with this financialization that only is interested in profit um, and subordinates all other values. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's gonna be hard. Um, but I would like to think that it can work with some organization and some political luck. <laughs> I don't know. If that is a question from hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, that was uh, your answer was oddly tinged with optimism. I think I heard some in there somewhere. <laughs> it's desperate sometimes. But yeah, <laughs> it's that desperate little voice inside of all of us. Kelly, thank you. Thank you so much for being on our show today. This is oh, absolutely f- fascinating writing. And when uh, you know when your book is going to be published, please contact us because we'd love to have you back on the show. Yeah, it's it's been great. And you asked me a lot of really good questions. I really appreciate that. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks right. so much. All right. Take care, Kelly. You too. Bye. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. Go ahead. Try it. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. If that conversation with Kelly Grotke about the private sector capturing the public good of higher education got you really angry or made you feel like, oh my God, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support. See all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for all your support. Richard, please remind the listening audience 
What is this week's question from hell? And tell them how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what are you stockpiling over there? We have a few answers. Kim G answers the darkest of laughs. <laughs> you really like Kim G's responses, <laughs> don't <do>. you? <laughs> Renato M is stockpiling ingredients for pasta fazool. Oh, Jesus. All right. <laughs> Joe G is stockpiling pre-apocalyptic stories. Oh, that's nice. Warren L is stockpiling Facebook jail days, apparently. <laughs> I don't know if you can trade those in for anything. I, I think for uh, Dogecoin. I think that's what you can do with it. Pete V is stockpiling anthrax. <laughs> that's a big mistake, and you shouldn't put that in print on social media. That knock at your door, that's the FBI. Don't go to, don't go to Pete's house. <laughs> no, do not go to Pete's house. And I'm curious about what's going on in the cooler in the basement. <laughs> what are you stockpiling over there? Kevin W answers... Adult diapers. Everyone else can have the toilet paper. <laughs> That's disgusting and very practical. Jessica B answers compost. <laughs> I think okay. I think if you are, yeah, you, you stockpile compost. I think you can't help but stockpile it. I think that's the action of keeping compost. Uh, what are you stockpiling over there? Marie G answers stock in big pharma. Of course. <laughs> of course. And that's all we have for the moment. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff must look back on a piece of theater he never saw. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to Friday's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast shortly after at the same place. Also, get a discount on all This Is Hell merchandise. Everybody who subscribes to This Is Hell on Patreon gets a discount on all of our merchandise on Patreon this coming Friday. Well, if you listen to the show, you likely know that I am vaccinated against COVID-19. I had a horrible reaction to the second dose that laid me up for a couple of weeks. Since being vaccinated, I have had two horrible colds, one immediately followed by another. So who knows? Maybe it's just one long, awful cold that played a trick on me by pretending to be over for a few days. In other words, no, I have not been infected with COVID or any of its variants. As far as I know, I did take a COVID test back in June, which came up negative, but that was before the Delta variant was sweeping the nation. All that said, just because I am vaccinated doesn't mean I'm, I am better than the unvaccinated, that I'm being a, a dick about it, or that in some way the unvaccinated is some lower level of society to be looked down upon. Feeling contempt for a whole section of society is no way to live your life. I know, I've been the victim of feelings of contempt before. I've been seen as beneath consideration, worthless, even deserving of scorn, the very definition of contempt. I don't know about you, but condescension and the feeling of superiority over others, even disdain for others, well, that's not for me. That's why I've been trying to figure out what is driving the unwillingness of many to protect themselves from the virus, in particular, there are people very close to me, brilliant people, some of the most intelligent, inquisitive people I know who are refusing to get vaccinated. So instead of looking down on them in some elitist fashion, I've decided to attempt to understand their decision to not get vac vaccinated. And I think I got it. I, I, I think I know why they're not getting the shot. And because I think I figured it out, I'll be sharing that 
on Patreon this Friday, also on Patreon. 13 years ago this week, the global financial crisis began, also known as the Great Recession. It was one of those media moments when the news could claim that nobody saw this coming, when in reality, there were plenty of warnings for several years. We had economist Dean Baker on our show as early as 2000, geez, I think it was 2002 or 2003, offering anyone a thousand bucks. Thousand bucks. Look, Dean's not rich, but it's a thousand dollars. He was offering anybody a thousand dollars if they could prove we were not in the middle of a housing bubble, a housing bubble that Dean was arguing way back in 2002 or maybe it was 2003 was going to lead to a financial collapse. But as is our want here on This Is Hell, we were not only talking about the economic downturn that was upon us at the time, we were also discussing other news that was being ignored. So we will be playing our September 20th, 2008 interview with Ken Menkhaus, a political science professor at North Carolina's Davidson College and a former political advisor to the UN operation in Somalia. Ken had a new report out that was not getting any media attention as it was all focused on the Great Recession. That paper, which appeared at the Enough Projects website, Enough to enoughproject.org was called Somalia, a country in peril, a policy nightmare. Ken wrote, U.S. counterterrorism policies have not only compromised other international agendas in Somalia, they have generated a high level of anti-Americanism and are contributing to radicalization of the population in what could become a dangerous, dangerous instance of blowback defense and intelligence operations intended to make the United States more secure from the threat of terrorism, maybe increasing the threat of jihadist attacks on American interests. And Ken was correct, as many point to U.S. actions in Somalia, causing the rise of the terror group Al-Shabaab. But you can only hear me trying to figure out why smart people, good people are not getting vaccinated in a conversation on the U.S. role in fomenting terrorism in Somalia by subscribing to the weekly This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at the same place. And that place is, again, patreon.com slash thisishell, live from hangover country, this is hell. I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Hey. One more the broken and the misshapen in art. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Over 20 years ago, I started a project I'm still working on, documenting the life and work of an artist, Resh Shaprudi, who used iconography around the god from the Purana literature of what is now Hinduism, the god called Ganesh, or Ganpati, or Vinayaka, or any number of other names, to explore the nature of oppression. Part of Reshaprudi's mythos is how and why Ganesh enters the events of the European genocide of World War II, often known as the Holocaust, and how through Ganesh's intervention, the god of the Jews and the gods of the Hindus agree to bestow moksha upon the impoverished and oppressed. Moksha is the release of the soul from the cycle of metempsychosis or reincarnation. It's considered a good thing to be released from that cycle. If you're not familiar with Ganesh, he's the chunky god with the head of an elephant. He's really easy to pick out of a crowd. A big part of Reshaprudi's work involved syncretically assembling images, language, and symbols from Hinduism, Judaism, and the European genocide in World War II. So a lot of the art created by Shaprudi involves Ganesh appearing in scenes of Nazi labor and death camps. Coincidentally, 
about a decade and a half after I started working on the Rashapruti project, an Australian play was touring the world called Ganesh versus the Third Reich, created by back-to-back theater company. The conceit was this. A theater company is in the process of putting together a stage play about Ganesh coming to Earth to recapture the swastika from the Nazis who'd misappropriated it. I'm not sure if I was ever in a position to see this work. 2013, the year it toured, was also the year I was in India on the set of a movie and after the shoot, traveling through India, Thailand, and Laos. Recently, I decided to go back into the project and encountered some clippings on the back-to-back play. I was barely familiar with the company's aesthetic, which is political, experimental, and purposely provocative. The theater company to which I claim membership, Theater Ublek, boasted a similar aesthetic back then. It may still, I don't know, I know we considered art to be less interesting if it didn't in some way transgress the everyday. Back to Back is a company the majority of whose membership are disabled, intellectually disabled, to quote from a New York Times review of the Ganesh play, the reviewer himself quoting from the script, far be it from me to tell people how to refer to themselves, but having explored their website, I personally don't see them as intellectually disabled at all. I might argue they're behaviorally disabled in that they evince artifacts of behavior outside the norms of what we consider business-like society. The genius of what they've done through their years of work is create situations, albeit theatrical situations, in which their disabilities are integral to the behavior expected or required. They are excellent actors, incidentally. They know their lines. They inhabit the emotions their characters are meant to be experiencing. They are highly skilled. Now, I know many people, including myself, upon hearing that someone is an actor, immediately assume they suffer from an intellectual disability. It would seem to be in the job description. Even as a sometimes actor myself, I've made this assumption. I think this is more a symptom of our faulty definitions of intellectual ability. Just this week, I had coffee with a man who is without a doubt a certified, accomplished intellectual, and I can say with almost perfect certainty that few have been disabled by their intellectualism as much as he has. Everyone around us overheard his opinions, arrived at through careful study and analysis, and had we been armed with cream pies, that man would have drowned within the hour. I've always had a love-hate relationship with political activism, political discourse, and political thinking. I've had more of a love-love relationship with political theater, though not an unconditional love-love. What I love about the politics of back-to-back is that only in art can they display both their disabilities and abilities while opening for examination, the drama of discrimination and oppression people labeled disabled experience. I once used to think quite highly of myself as a theater maker. Now I'm much more comfortable questioning my reasons for making a public display of myself, my beliefs, and my abilities. As I watch the entire world waving their dicks and tits and asses around in their TikToks and such, my former behavior makes me a little sick. But I'm able to cut myself some slack, give myself the benefit of the doubt in retrospect. Back to back seems only to have time for doubt insofar as it represents an aspect of life to be explored, not as an activity in which to be indulged. One member of the back to back company, Scott Price, 
conducted a series of interviews on art and provocation over the year 2016. The interviews are online on YouTube, also accessible at the Back to Back website, and are entertaining and edifying to watch. The whole site is well worth exploring. Some of it is mind-blowing. They've made a 30-minute movie called Oddlands that I would be keen to see if anyone gets word of it being screened or streamed anywhere. Back to Back answers so many of my questions about why making art of any kind is an important pursuit, even in the current period where everyone and their auntie is bidding for a place in the spectacle. I'm impressed that they continue to produce work. I'm impressed that Australia, on the surface merely a factory for drunken fascism and venomous wildlife, could have incubated, birthed, and sustained a troupe of artists such as this. I don't want to say it gives me hope for the future. We're in the future now, so we all know better than to rely on hope. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So, Jeffy, you just observed your high holidays that are religious, religion-focused. My high holidays are more focused on weed, and they start in about 12 minutes. So, Very uh, high. How, how high. were you? <laughs> Happy harvest, by the way. It's harvest time. I wonder if uh, the weed farmers celebrate the harvest. Oh, yes, they do. Hey, oh. uh, Jeffrey. Richard. Yes? We Richard. at the Museum of Contemporary Art produced that or presented that play back in 2013 or whatever it was. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So, no kidding. How'd you like? Did you get to see it? I did, of course. I don't remember everything about it because it was 10 years ago and we do right. so much work that it all kind of runs together a little bit. But I remember them being pretty cool and a, a great show. Well, that's I've cool. seen scenes from it. It's pretty, it, the, 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 the website is. Amazing. I mean, yeah. So what is the web, what is the website anyway? Uh, I don't have the URL <laughs> on me, but it's back to back theater, or um, I think back to back should do it. All right. I'll look. It I up. mean, I don't know. I can put it in the text of the the moment of truth if people are interested, and they should be. Maybe sure. I'll just do that. No, why don't you just do that? I gotta I gotta edit the the document anyway because I misspelled a lot of things, <laughs> which I had to, which gave me a little uh, uh, I don't know I stumbled a bit throughout the thing but yeah whatever. What are you gonna do? Anyhow, how are you gonna celebrate the harvest, Chuck? How about Richard? How how are both of you gonna celebrate the harvest? I am going to celebrate by uh, you know smoking weed on my back porch, butt naked. Oh, that is excellent, and Richard. Pumpkin pie. Eating pasta pumpkin pie. Pumpkin, pumpkin pie. pie. Rocket. I celebrated by sitting in a temporary shelter on somebody's front lawn, eating meatballs and tabbouleh. Just a random person's front lawn? Yeah, I just saw some guy had uh, set up a lean-to. No, I was invited to a whole thing. A thing of, uh, it, was a, it was a celebration of uh, kind of, it was it was filled with, not my favorite people, no. but they were nice. They were they were nice, but a little, I would say, uh, younger people. Not you guys, <laughs> but like uh, decades younger are they are incurious and vacuous. Oh well, Jeffy, on that yeah, on that very very happy note. Yes. Stay beautiful.
I'm stockpiling beauty products. Are you? Okay. All right. Talk Over to you here. soon. Stay beautiful, my <laughs> friend. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is Hell Richard. Do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell? We do not. All right. So the answers I liked most were Marie G saying that she is stockpiling stock in Big Pharma, of course. Jessica saying she is stockpiling compost. Kevin W saying he is stockpiling adult diapers. Everyone else can have the toilet paper. Pete's answer of anthrax was exceptional, although I think it might get him in trouble. Borky saying that he is stockpiling uranium. See Pete Valavanis's response because Borky, I think you and Pete might need to see the same attorneys. Chase saying that Chase is stockpiling debt and fabio saying that he is stockpiling memes that makes this week's winner chase for saying that they are stockpiling debt the my answer to this week's question from hell what are you stockpiling over there here at this is hell we are currently stockpiling art for next year's 26th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show art that is being sent to us by listeners and we're also stockpiling prizes to be given away during the raffle at next year's party again prizes that are being sent to us by you if you want to send us art or for the art show or prizes for the raffle Tell us what the art of prize is via email at chuckatthisishell.com, and then we'll tell you a secure address to send it to in order to ensure that we actually get your contribution in the mail. And so far, the prizes in the art that we have been receiving has been fantastic. Thanks to everyone for sending your answers to this week's question from hell. Richard, do we know who's going to be on next week's shows? Oh, um, actually, we don't, except, well, not for Monday and Tuesday, but Wednesday we do. Kyle Edward Williams on his baffler piece, Conserving Liberalism. Oh, that sounds creepy. And Jeff Dorch will be doing a moment of truth again next Wednesday. This week's Hangover Cure is Papas Reyanus. Thanks to this week's guests, including historian Molly A. Warsh, author of American Baroque Pearls in the Nature of Empire. Thanks to Max Haven, author of Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Thanks to listener Jamie Kay for suggesting Max to be on the show. And thanks to today's guest, Kelly Grocky, who wrote the American Prospect article, The Failure of Financialized Higher Education. And again, thank you to Trevor for suggesting Kelly. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Richard Norwood for running the board today. And to Jess Lipka and Alex for both running the board earlier this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. And Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Uh, anything else I want to mention? Talk to you on Friday at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'll be trying to understand why good smart people are refusing to get vaccinated and we'll, sh- and we'll share the uh, conversation from 2008 about the U.S. role in contributing to the growth of terrorism in Somalia. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the Guy focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. To knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>